Voice of Fintech. Welcome to Voice of Fintech, a podcast mapping out the Swiss and global fintech scene, connecting fintech enthusiasts with startups, incubators, accelerators, business angels and VCs, and incumbents interested in partnerships. Voice of Fintech will help you navigate the fintech ecosystem. Here you can listen to the startup founder stories, what investors and incumbents are looking for when dealing with startups, and find out more about resources provided by incubators and accelerators. My name is Rudy Fallad and I'll be hosting this podcast. Hello and welcome to Voice of Fintech. Today we're going to talk to Luis and we're going to talk about trade financing or BMPL in a B2B context. Let's see what that means and why is it needed. But first of all, Luis, how are you today? Hey, good morning, Rudy. Thanks a lot for having me. All good today. All right, great. So where are you connecting from today? I'm connecting from uh, Brittany, uh, from a secondary house. But as a company, usually we're mainly based in London and Paris. All right, brilliant. So first, let's start to paint a picture and tell us about yourself. What's your background? How did you get to do what you do today? And why have you decided to become an entrepreneur? So I spent 20 years in financial services, a French national and started my career in London in consulting. Got actually a few assignments in Switzerland, lived in Zurich for a couple of years. And more recently, about 10 years ago, I joined a company called Eula Harmes, Euler Harmes, as you might refer to them in the German-speaking world. They are now part of the Allianz Group. And what they do is they're the world leader in credit insurance, which is the insurance against unpaid invoices. So it's in that world of trade finance, a product that sits alongside letters of credit, factoring, supply chain finance. And it's basically all about supporting B2B trade. And when I worked there, I noticed that a lot of the B2B trade was actually migrating online with the rise of B2B marketplaces and e-commerce in, in general. And one pain point that we had was that we couldn't really support those online transactions because they happen they happen 24/7 they happen within a few seconds and our legacy tech and product were geared towards a different uh, pace of transaction happening over 48 hours or something like that so that's how i saw the need for the solution that we created at hokodo and basically considering that today's payment methods don't allow merchants to offer credit terms when selling online. And that's really the pain point that we address. And that's more and more needed today as a lot of B2B trade is migrating online. You have a lot of e-commerce taking place and yet merchants lack the right payment solutions for their, for their online transactions happening with professional buyers. So that's how we came up to set up Hokodo which some refer to as a BNPL solution for professional customers. So we're a little bit like a clan of B2B. Right. So I think the angles or features of that problem are the online world, e-commerce, the speed. Does this also work for traditional 
businesses as well. It brings me back when I worked at Kraft in Vienna, we were doing the export business to former Yugoslavia. We used credit insurance, but also bank guarantees or cash and delivery, things like this. So would your solution work for, uh, let's say, a big consumer goods companies as well? Or are you focusing on online and the main feature of that problem is the speed and the online world? Yeah, so I think more the latter. So we're really specialized in online transactions. But what's interesting and what is happening at the moment and was further accelerated by COVID is that B2B sales are really migrating online at a fast pace. In 2020, so in the middle of COVID, it was the first time that in B2B, online sales had surpassed uh, you know, in-person sales. So that's, uh, that tells you the speed at which it's happening. And now the estimates vary a bit, but you have 10 to 20% of B2B trade that's taking place online. And we see a lot of large corporates, the likes of the, the Siemens of this world, who are considering online as a viable channel, in particular to address the long tail of professional customers, and why is that? It's because those customers, even though they are B2B buyers, they're happy to make large purchases online. So there was a McKinsey survey that was done in October 2020 that showed that 70% of B2B buyers were happy to make purchases online worth more than 50,000 euros, so 55 zero. So that shows you that you have a significant proportion of the B2B trade, which is now addressable online with a customer journey and speed that was just unprecedented in the, in the B2B world. And it's that part of the, that segment of the market, which is a, a, about 20% of all B2B trade that we're, that we're addressing because of that massive gap right now around proper, you know, B2B grade solutions supporting them. Brilliant. Of course, if you wanted to buy a truck of, full of coffee for 100,000 or more euros, right? Why would you be comfortable with doing it over the phone or sending a fax? That's really the thing of the past. But why were the big customers wary of trading online? Because of the security? So... If you made a big order of 50,000, 100,000 euros, you probably would be a little bit more worried than on your e-commerce site if you buy a stuff for tens of euros or hundreds of euros, right? Yeah, that's correct. And also because for large purchases, you often have a level of customization and discussion and negotiation that happens, which traditionally w would often take place by email or on the phone where you have a sales rep, an account executive selling you the solution and you're negotiating the features together. And eventually you come to an agreement and you have that big sale, several hundred thousand pounds or euros or Swiss francs taking place in the end. And that's a segment of the market which will always remain. So our thesis is that you, you do have like very large purchases where there's a lot of tailoring that are never going to to move online or it's going to be hard. But you have that growing long tail of run-of-mill trades, which can move online, providing 
superior economics, both to the buyers and to the sellers. And also the other, the other factor is that people have been educated by the kind of Amazon one-click checkout experience. And this is something that they enjoy in their day-to-day lives as individual consumers. But then when they are, when they come to the workplace and they have their own procurement processes where it's like blue screens and fax machines and so on, and long email trails, that becomes clunky and awkward. And you do expect something that's more streamlined, even on the workplace. And that same survey I was referring to a bit earlier showed that 73% of the B2B buyers are actually millennials. And these people prefer buying online and having, a, in many cases, a kind of browsing for themselves rather than having phone calls to make a purchase. Of course. But I, what I had in mind is maybe you negotiate a framework agreement for a year for distribution, and then you keep on ordering every week. So definitely for this, you, def- you should be using an online solution. And for negotiation, maybe for some parts of it as well. You can also say what features you want, etc. And then you just negotiate at the end rather than 15 times. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So what's the difference between you, Hokodo Solution, and other trade findings providers? If you can explain what is your competitive advantage or unfair advantage, as some people call it. Yeah. So most people who come to Hokodo actually don't come to us because they want the financing or that's not the main driver. Most of our customers come to Hokodo because they're looking for a good payment method to sell online. And if you just want financing, I think you can go to any high street bank and you're going to get very favorable conditions, which probably Hokodo cannot match. But if you want to increase your conversion rates on your checkout and deliver the best purchasing experience to your customers, then that's where Hokodo can help. Where we support our clients is solve the number one question is which of my customers are credit worthy and can you do make those credit decisions within one second so that at checkout i can immediately filter between those customers who will have payment terms and the remaining customers who are less credit worthy and won't have the deferred payment button on the checkout So that's the pain point number one. And then pain point number two, in case one of my customers doesn't pay me back, will you protect me from the risk of bad debt? Will you protect me against fraud risk, which is an inherent feature of online sales? Will you support me in the collections process? So this is really why customers come to us. And it's actually funny that many customers don't ask for the fi- for the financing so all of them want to organize those payment terms for their customers so that their customers can actually have 30 or 60 days of deferred payment when checking out but many of our merchants are actually happy to wait for the end buyers to pay and they don't need the upfront financing because that's not the reason why they came to Hokodo in the first place so I hope this this explains a little bit how we position Hokodo versus 
other trade finance solutions. And also against BNPL in general, right? Because you talk about user experience, which everybody talks about, even BNPL in consumer space, but you also talk about credit. And I love it if I can pay in four installments and things like this, but do I need a PlayStation 5 and can I afford it? So it's just sometimes a little bit too easy. So I hope we will not pay a dear lesson uh, from it like we did in 2008. But let's see. What is your technology angle there? Because you mentioned that you want to have a user experience where you can decide creditworthiness in seconds. So how do you do that? Before I jump to the technology angle, do you mind if I bounce back on your comments? Because I think you made a really important observation about the BNPL, which I think is very true, that in many cases, it's just a disguised form of consumer credit that pushes people into debt and helps people buy a PlayStation or one more pair of sneakers when they shouldn't have done so. In There's a big difference there in the B2B world, because let's imagine for the sake of the example that you're a company operating in construction and you need to purchase some, some supplies for a job, a building that you're, that you're refurbishing. If, you're, if you need two bags of cement for that job, you're unlikely to purchase three bags just because you were benefiting from deferred payment. <laughs> and those are not fun purchases and professional buyers are always trying to minimize the cost of goods sold and the cost of their supplies. So they're, they're not really, they're very unlikely, let's say, to be pushed into debt in the same way as a consumer would be. So these are not really fun purchases that they make in most cases. So the B2B world has a very different dynamics from the B2C world. And those payment terms that have made the headlines in, in B2C, that has existed in B2B for decades, if not centuries. So companies purchase with, uh, with payment terms, and that's what they've been doing since the 19th century. And the only thing that we're helping them do is making that process which exists, which is the norm in the offline world, making it smoother and possible in the online world. And to do that's a nice segue into your question about the technology angle. Everything we do at Hokodo is about supporting this process of credit assessment online. So the core technology angle that we have is around our risk and data platform. So we've built a database of 40 million European companies, which we credit score with our proprietary algorithms so that when they arrive at the checkout of one of our merchants, we can say within actually 300 milliseconds, whether or not they're eligible for payment terms. And that's the big, the, you know, the big enabler and what will eventually enable us to scale and give more companies the payment terms they deserve when they're shopping online. So that's the main technology angle that we have at Hokodo. And then underpinning this and the way we distribute it to merchants and make it available to them is an API layer that allows the merchant to integrate the Hokodo solution in a few days and thereby offer payment terms to all their online customers even on their first purchase. 
So that's in a nutshell how we operate. Part of that is, I would call it a strategic positioning or move when you say you're building a proprietary database of companies, right? So you can rate them quickly. Now, maybe one follow-up on this, because in many countries, a lot of these companies, I'm sure, are privately held. They don't need to publish the financials. So do they give you something else? Do they need to sign up to your database or you're doing it from public sources or how does that work? In the UK, you need to publish company financials anyway, but in other countries, not so much. Or are you using other indicators of their performance to to give you a view on credit worthiness? That's an excellent question. It's a data puzzle. Is like a, it's like a cake with three layers. Layer one is the company financials and filings. And as you rightly say, in, com- in countries like the UK or France, Germany, Benelux, Spain, where we operate, the f- that first layer of the cake is pretty, pretty thick. And there's a lot of info that you can already extract. Then you have some non-financial information. Who are the directors of that company? Where are they based? Have they held other director positions in the past? Have they folded companies? So that is also pretty predictive, actually. And the third layer of the cake, which is actually more more real-time, is usually provided by the merchant. So there is trading information on the marketplace or on the website. How many purchases has the customer done in the past? What was the size of these purchases? And so on and so forth. And then you also have basket data. So for instance, we work for a hardware equipment wholesaler in the UK. And there it's amazing to see that the default rates are higher for Apple hardware than it is for Samsung or Lenovo, for instance. So being able to capture this data and piece together the three layers of the cake allows you to build a pretty comprehensive set of data points which you can use in your underwriting. And that's why the um, that risk and data platform is so core and strategic. And then behind this, there's also a piece around financial engineering. So as a company, we're backed by a SCORE, who are the world's fourth largest reinsurance company. And we're also a Lloyd's cover holder, which allow all the transactions that go through our payment solution to be ultimately insured against the risk of bad debt. So that the merchants, when they, once they start using Hokodo, know that they are protected against the risk of non-payment. Okay, fantastic. But still, let me push you on that top layer. Because you said you have the order data there, but is that order data from your platform or that they went through your platform? Or can they show you the their order history from somewhere else? Or how does that work? Because otherwise, on day one, you only have two layers, right? Yeah, on day one, and especially when you have a new customer on that arrives to the website of the merchant, you don't have as much information as if you have a customer who's already done you know, 50 trades over the past two years, no disputes, and then you know that you have someone with who's likely to be very high quality, the risk of fraud on that customer becomes very small. So you need to combine that scoring with then also underwriting rules where you manage the limits 
also based on the confidence that you have on on that counterpart and on the confidence that you have that this person is who they say they are and you have no impersonation, which is the, the big risk in online purchases, as you can imagine. All right. So you will be able to provide credit, but probably will be a lower limit at in the first few transactions, and then you can increase it as you gain confidence, correct? That's absolutely right. Okay. All right. And anyway, it brings me back to when I lived in the US and you arrived there and without a credit card, you're a nobody, right? You're an outcast. So how do you build a credit card history if you're a foreigner and showed up in the US? You need to get a prepaid card, which wasn't very helpful, but that's how you build the history, right? Yeah. Yeah. And then you can do something. All right. So you mentioned also your thoughts about scaling up. What are your plans to scale up and how would you go about this? Is that something you think about in terms of going to more markets, more countries, or providing more services, expanding your products and services range or what? Yeah, it's really multidimensional, as you highlight. So one one angle is geographical. At the end of the day, we're still two thirds in, in the UK and have only just started our expansion on the European continent. So we're present in France, Germany, Belgium, Netherlands, Spain, but there's a roadmap towards capturing, covering um, all of Europe within a couple of years. So that's one angle. There's also a product angle where the solution we have mostly works online and we'd like to make it more omni-channel. So most of our merchants tell us, we like Hokodo, it's great that you cover our e-commerce channel, but we also have telesales done over the phone. We also have point of sale at the warehouse. Could our customers benefit from payment terms when they come through these other channels? So that's a big, a big area of development of our solution and also making it more, more modular because behind the payment solution, which is a bit like the tip in the, of the iceberg in B2B, you actually have a whole value chain of credit risk management that entails the credit decisions, the fraud detection, the collections, the insurance against the non-payment and the financing. So you have all these building blocks underneath. And what's very interesting is that our merchants usually want a subset of that value chain. So some merchants want to retain the collections activity. Some merchants, as I mentioned, don't need the financing. Some merchants would like to have just the credit risk decisions and the credit and credit risk insurance. So we're really trying to make our solution much more modular so that especially the large multinational merchants find in Hokodo the, the building blocks that they need to manage their credit risk. So that's, the, that's another big angle. And the last one is more sectoral, where we want to open some new verticals in the coming, coming years, including automotive, SaaS, where we've seen the need and heard several merchants that wanted to benefit from our solution. But that requires specific product build from our side because these are the workflows and characteristics of those sectors make them a bit different from the rest. 
All right, so I see there's a three-dimensional three approach, so countries, the products, and the verticals. All right, now you mentioned this is a primarily a solution for e-commerce, but of course, as you just said also, there are different verticals underneath, right? What sectors, let's clarify once again, what sectors do you focus on now? And what is the outlook for those sectors for the rest of the year, given the economy is going the way it's going this year, everywhere in the world? Yeah, so the sections where uh, the sectors where we operate are purely B2B, and there's a, a variety, but the main ones off the top of my head are in construction, everything around homeware, home furnishings, textile and clothing, food and beverage, horticulture, and on each of these of these sector of these sectors, the underwriting is paramount. So for us, that means first steering the generation of new opportunities into the sectors that are going to be less affected by the upcoming crisis. So to give you an illustration, during COVID, unfortunately, we didn't address the, the food and beverage restaurant industry, and we didn't address the world of events, so hospitality in general because you know, just the default rates were going to be unsustainable. So you need to steer both at origination and then at underwriting by managing the acceptance rate so that you're, you're protecting your merchants from the insolvencies and always keeping that balance between, be, between payments and the bad debt rate. And have you seen any slowdown in construction volumes in your orders or not yet or not at all? Not yet. A bit too early. That's something that we're monitoring extremely actively, as you can imagine. For us, the slowdown of the economy has a kind of twin effect, which is very paradoxical. So one effect is that it's actually good for, for our sales because you have more merchants who realize that payment terms are going to be a great tool for them to gain uh, market share. So we do have a lot of demand. And at, at, the, at the other end, making sure that the default rates and non-payment rates become remain manageable. And we haven't yet seen the spike in, in default rates, but this is something that we're expecting. Also because the, the government subsidies that existed during COVID are also about to be unplugged in most countries or have been unplugged. So this is likely to create a kind of mean reversal where many companies have been shielded from insolvency and will probably some of the zombie companies which were artificially subsidized are likely to fold in the coming months. Right. And I think there is maybe one other topic we could explore, but that would be probably a separate podcast. It's the future of work, because when you talk about construction, I've seen so much construction, uh, even in 2008 and nine of all these skyscrapers in London. And I think because there, are, of course, there is, of course, a bit of a delay in these projects. Same thing when especially incumbent banks trying to ask all the staff to come back to the offices and saying we are the office culture. I think it's also because they committed to this space a while ago, for a long time, but in some unicorns that they have huge space and there is nobody there. So they are trying to sublet it to others, but the trend is changing. So there was a discussion 
going on during the pandemic that, yes, we will need these buildings, but they will be suited for a different purpose. And maybe we should think about it differently rather than commuting for one hour, going to type something in and then come back in an hour. Yeah, actually, I think this crisis, which probably when we look back in 20 years, we'll see that there was probably a big crisis with uh, COVID and return of inflation, supply chain issues, the war and all of this compounded to create a very specific environment for a few years. I think it's also in those times that you the new models emerge and you already see the impact. I don't know if you know the La Défense area, area, which in Paris is a little bit like the Canary Wharf of Paris. They estimate that they're running at less than 50% volumes of workers than, before, than pre-COVID. So all the industries of catering and so on that were attached to this area are basically being questioned because the all those uh, office buildings are only half full or half empty, depending on how you look at it. One practical question for you. How do you make money? So it's a, a very simple model. Our clients view us as their payment solution for B2B sales. So we take a processing fee, just a, a payment service provider would. So out of on every transaction, we take a percentage of that transaction as our remuneration. And this would cover the cost of bad rate, sorry, of bad debt, the cost of the credit decision, the cost of financing, the cost of insurance, and, and that's how we make money. So typically out of one, 100 euros, our fees would be in the two to three euro range. That depends a little bit on the industry and level of risk. It also depends on the payment terms. 60 days are more expensive to manage than 30 days, as you would expect. Okay, which actually remind me one more question. We talk about credit insurance, etc. and the bad debt. But if the bad debt happens with your solution, are you helping there as well? Or how does that work? Because when I did this years ago in export financing, of course, bank guarantee was more expensive, but you ask for the money when the customer doesn't pay, you get it within three days. But with the credit insurance, it was a lengthy process and you had to go to the court and things like this. And then you got the money and there was a deductible, all of that. So how would that work with you? Yeah, so when a transaction happen on, happens on, on the website, so let's say it's a 100 euro transaction for the sake of the example, the customer gets 60 days to pay. We typically pay the merchant the week after the transaction took place. So the merchant at that point has the 100 euros minus our fees, so let's call it 98 euros, and they will keep the 98 euros no matter what. So then... If the end buyer doesn't pay, it's our job to run the collections process and so on. But we're not going to claw it back from the merchant. So it's really, for the merchant, it gives you full visibility on your cash flow. And then, as I mentioned before, we have merchants who tell us, I want the money as up, so pay me one week after the transaction took place. Some others are happy to wait for 60 days. And they tell us, yeah, pay me on the due date. But at least even in that second option where there is no pre-financing of the merchant, the merchant still has visibility on their cash flows because they know that they will be paid in 60 days, no matter what. Okay, brilliant. So sounds great. 
Now, maybe before we go, I have two easy questions for you. First of all, do you have a favorite business book to recommend? That's the that's the catch question, the catch twenty two question. So the one I really love is the hard things, the hard thing about hard things. But the one I would potentially and recommend because it's less well known and still extremely enlightening is a book called Empowered by Marty Kagan, which talks about empowered product teams. And how basically the Silicon Valley model of product development has really become the norm and enabled the likes of Google and Tesla to ship better products, iterate faster. And that's really fundamentally changing the way companies organize and delegate and empower their employees to solve problems and do their best work. I see. Great. A hard thing about hard things. The guests are recommended time and time again. This is the seventh time, I think. We need to look Surprised. into this. <laughs> <laughs> Why? But that's the crowd here. And then the second one, I will put the link in the show notes so people can check it out. What is the best way to reach out if people have questions or they want to do business with you? Or what kind of parties would you like to hear from most? So anyone interested in a career that intersects Paytech, InsureTech, and Lentech. We're recruiting across all departments. That's either directly to me on our website, careers at Hokodo. That would work. We're reachable for that matter on hokodo.co, so not .com, .co. And then for any business leader interested in B2B e-commerce or in solving the issue of online payments for their platform, uh, can find me very easily. I'm super available on LinkedIn, so Louis Carbonnier, or by email as well, louis uh, at hokodo.co. Brilliant. Good luck to Louis and Hokodo, and thank you so much. Thanks a lot, Rudy. Thank you for listening to Voice of Fintech podcast. If you haven't already, check out also voiceoffintech.com, where you will find all the episodes and additional resources related to the podcast. You can also subscribe to Voice of Fintech on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or any other podcast app that you like. If you have any suggestions on the topics or guests or how to make this podcast better for you, please email us at info at Happy to hear from you. Thank you.